Nick, you seemed taller the other day when you were in the office. You had boots on or something? No, I, I, I don't think my boots were. I mean, I had like some different shoes on, but they're not, they're not really that tall. Nick, are you wearing elevator shoes? You can tell that if we're talking about it, that means that, that you know, we always, it's like the Nick notes of the day, right? Nick notes. He's the only guy, he's the only guy in the office. But he's already tall. Yeah, but like he seemed taller and I don't, maybe I was just slouching or maybe I, I'm, you know, maybe I'm, I have some arthritis or vertebrae erosion or something that's- Maybe, maybe I was, maybe I was standing up straighter. I was feeling good, you know, confident. The lawsuit gave you a certain kind of yeah, swagger. Maybe. Probably a little bit. Yeah, you're all over that thing, man. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Hillman. On this week's episode, The Lens, with the help of the Tulane First Amendment Law Clinic, has filed suit against the Louisiana Office of Juvenile Justice over its failure to release public records that the agency has refused to provide after months of requests. And Matthew Kincaid, the founder of Overcoming Racism, which provides race and equity training to schools, has released a new book focused on giving teachers tools to empower their students to take control of their education. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Lens editor Katie Rechdahl. Hey, how are you? And special guest Matthew Kincaid, author of the new book, Freedom Teaching, Overcoming Racism in Education to Create Classrooms Where All Students Succeed. Hi, Matthew. Hello. Thank you all so much for having me. Thanks for being here. All right, Nick, earlier this week, the Lens, with the help of the Tulane First Amendment Law Clinic, filed a suit against the Louisiana Office of Juvenile Justice for its failure to provide documentation detailing a nearly $10 million contract for private security staff at state juvenile facilities. The contract had been given emergency authorization by the state, but has they've been not forthcoming with your request for details about the contract. We talked about this um these issues a while back. Can you, just for the benefit of our listeners who maybe missed that podcast and the original story, can you talk about um, what the issues were at these state prisons and what this contract said? Sure. So the contract is between the Office of Juvenile Justice that runs uh, the youth prison system in the state. And it is a $9.5 million contract for 52 uh, security staff for two of the, the prisons, which are, they call secure care facilities. So the, the issues with the contract, one, it was done quietly. There was no announcement about this. Um, you know, we found out and, and got the contract from, you know, actually through a public records request, uh, got the contract. And some of the things that stuck out about this contract were, one, it's a really large contract. It's one of the largest contracts that the Office of Juvenile Justice has. Um, at $9.5 million for a year. And it's 52 employees, which, you know, comes out to about $180,000 per employee. And these are entry-level staffers. Um, so, you know, part of this is that the, the state said they needed staff quickly. They needed security staff. The whole uh, agency has been understaffed. Um, and basically said, you know, we needed to pay the staffing company get an emergency contract um, in order to quickly staff up these uh, these youth prisons. But it's a huge amount of money. Um, yeah. You know, the, these guards are being paid at most $25 an hour. 
So a huge portion of that that uh, amount that 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 is taxpayer money is going to this staffing company. Um, so that raised some eyebrows, and especially because, like I say, it was given this emergency authorization. Usually, these contracts are open bid and go through, um, you know, a, a six month long process to to ensure that that the state's getting the best deal. This was done um, really quickly, yeah. and basically, the the agency just sort of emailed a handful of people and then decided on on uh, this this company, Coleman Consulting Group. So those, you know, that, that's kind of the financial aspect of it. And then I think there's some concern from advocates about having these private, um, you know, employees that are kind of hired by an outside agency that doesn't really have any, you know, there's no real public oversight um, of it, making decisions about hiring, you know, people that are going to be working with incarcerated kids in the state. And, you know, we don't really have any information about sort of how that process went. And previously, this the state has utilized private uh, youth prisons, and, and it's gone really poorly. The conditions have been horrible. And, um, you know, have, we've kind of ended that practice. But this sort of, you know, partial privatization, I think, really concerns some people. Okay. And I know, I'm pretty sure I remember asking you these questions. And I think I know the answers, but I just want to clarify a couple things about the original contract. I think I remember asking you how you found out about this in the first place and you declined to answer. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Okay. I remember also that they gave uh, some justification about asking for emergency authorization for this contract was because of pandemic staff related shortages that everybody's experiencing still. Is that, did I ask that? And did you say yes? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I'd have to, I I do think that they cited the pandemic. I mean, you know, pretty much every um, law enforcement agency and and certainly jails and prisons are seeing staffing shortages. You know, both in the state and and across the country. So one of the issues, as I recall, Nick, is that when you put prisons in such a rural or podunk kind of setting. Like, like places that don't have a lot of social workers or people who are, are trained in youth, dealing with youth, you end up with a lot of problems. I remember going back to the you know early 2000s that they were having trouble staffing Tallulah up in northern Louisiana because they just, so they were hiring people straight out of high school for that. That's the only people that they could get and it didn't go well. So it feels like Partly the way in which they cite um, and choose locations has an imp- has an implication for for staff because you have trouble getting mm. trained um, security staff and social workers if you're not near an urban area. I mean, you, does that sound, sound right to you? Yeah, and, and part of this contract actually is they're paying the staffing company to transport people um, from Baton Rouge to these to these prisons and they're i think you know working a certain amount of time on and then and then going back so yeah definitely that's i mean that's definitely true and then i think you know like i said even here in new orleans that the the jail is understaffed um obviously the the police department is understaffed i think that getting people to do these um jobs right now for relatively low pay is is just kind of a difficult difficult process right which leads us to another of one of the eyebrow eyebrow raising um, tidbits in in all of this was that the amount that you've already outlined was a, amounts to one hundred eighty thousand dollars per employee when these people are being given 
probably $25 an hour. Is that, is that the maximum? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, that, you know, they kind of max out at 25 an hour. Okay. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, you can see the discrepancy, like if some, I mean, I think the contract works out to paying Coleman something like $75 an hour for, you know, each hour that, that one of their employees works, but you know, only a, yeah, only a fraction or about a third of that is going to the, to the employee. Right. Okay. All right. So this, this, well, what's the right word to use about this contract? Um, it, it caused you to ask a lot of questions and you started to ask a lot of questions. You got some answers, but you know, you did a story, we did a podcast, but there were still a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of holes in this and a typical contract like this, what they ultimately are contracted for and what the performance, what they're being paid, what that means they are responsible for doing, all of that is outlined in black and white. And that is a public record. That's part of the part of the record of fact of a, an agency that's being a, a, a company that's being paid by a state agency and therefore should have been provided to you as a member of the press under the public records law. So you kept getting stymied. Tell us about that process. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I requested record. The contract stipulates that Coleman will submit invoices to the Office of Juvenile Justice once a month and, and staffing plans weekly. And so not long after I got the contract, I requested uh, those records, which it seemed pretty clear to me that they should exist because they were very clearly outlined. And yeah, I got a few responses, some kind of an initial acknowledgement of the request. And, um, and then at some point, you know, they, they closed the request and I, well, they, they responded with one document, which was the contract, which I already had, and they had already given me. And I had actually submitted to them to say, you know, this contract shows that there should be staffing plans and, and invoices and I'd like them, but they didn't give me anything else. And, you know, responded in sort of a confusing way. They wouldn't say that the records didn't exist, but they said that basically they didn't have anything to turn over to me, hmm. uh, which, you know, is not the law. And then I responded several times um, to w without getting any response from them. And, and that was months ago. And so, yeah, here, you know, we decided to file this suit and see, yeah, see, we'll see how they, how they respond. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about that process of, of the lens actually uh, getting in touch with the Tulane uh, law clinic, the first amendment law clinic. It's a, it's a pretty extraordinary step. It's pretty noteworthy. And I just, I would like to know how, how that happened. Yeah. I mean, I was aware that the law, the law clinic, you know, only really started up a couple of years ago, I think. Um, and I was kind of aware that, that it had um, gotten started and that I knew they were interested in doing kind of public records type work. And so, you know, I think I can speak for, you know, not just myself, but Marty and Katie, like, we're often getting, you know, having public records delayed and and um, having to kind of be really persistent and and in trying to get these records. And in this instance, it sort of went 
a step further in, in sort of total non-response. And so I thought this was a, you know, a, a good, good thing to reach out to them with because really I had, I had you know, run out of options. So, mm-hmm. and we're so happy they're willing to take it on because, you know, like Nick said, we face a variety of barriers every day with records requests and it, it can be as big as up to what we're facing now against the office of juvenile justice, where either these records don't exist, which is a problem or they or their contractor does have them and they haven't turned them over, which is a problem. But we also see barriers at lower levels too, right? Like you can be at a public meeting, you can ask for a document that a board is looking at. Someone might tell you, you have to fill out a form to get that document. And that's not true. That's a records request. You've just filed it by saying it. So I think we also, we took this step because, you know, it's our job to ensure the public has access to this information um, and to tend to show people how to be able to do that. And, you know, we're lucky enough that that's our full-time job um, and other people don't have that luxury. So, you know, we have to hold those agencies accountable. This is coming at a particularly sort of sensitive moment in um, journalism in the country. Uh, there have been some really prominent publications, including the LA Times, which yesterday laid off 20% of its editorial staff. And organizations, small local organizations are losing, I think that what I read was um, every two weeks, five local publications are shutting down in this country. And how important, I, I just want you to speak to Nick, tie together the the fact that this Um, government agency went into this contract with this private company. This is taxpayer money that they're spending. And those agencies aren't shielded from having to provide records. You know, we see that every day with charter schools, which are nonprofits, which are essentially doing contracted work for the government. Um, We saw that in a lawsuit here against the SPCA, who was handling animal control for the city. Um, just because you're a, a different entity, if you are doing the work of the agency, those re- those are records are subject to public disclosure. And in this case, it's even simpler because it's literally in the contract that they're supposed to be providing these records to OJJ. I, mean, I think it's also like a totally bloated contract giant. <laughs> and so if you are getting $75 of gravy on top of every employee's $25 worth of work, and then you don't have the administrative capacity to do whatever the records are for OJJ. How in the world is that possible? That's a lot of money for administrative, a lot. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's kind of two things. Like one, there are questions about the contract and, and you know, we want to, to have answers to that. And certainly, you know, be having access to, to, to records and having, um an open government will will do a lot to hopefully you know weed out any possible corruption and and you know misuse of of taxpayer money but also you just want a responsive government and you want people to be able to access public records and you want you know the the public agencies to be kind of committed to those principles as well um aside from kind of the whatever the details of, of any particular story is. So, you know, I think that as, as journalists, like, like Marta said, we, we have the luxury of kind of having this as our job and, and 
trying to pressure those those systems to to be responsive to people and to be responsive to the public so okay the way i see it and maybe i'm wrong here but there are two possibilities and maybe there's a third but i don't see it that one they don't they administratively they just haven't followed the the letter of the contract and haven't done that little you know the plans and the staffing and whatnot the stuff that you've been asking for they don't have it because they just didn't do it the second option is they do it they did do it but they don't want the public to see they don't they just thought you would just go away if they kept saying um no you know we don't have it or or just pu pushing back that you would eventually give up because th there's stuff in there that they really don't want to share with the public you know it's hard to know what what the the agency is thinking and hard to ascribe any real kind of motives um right but it's you know i i could be wrong but i would find it hard to believe that if this company has been you know providing private security uh staffers i i assume they're getting paid and there's you got know, to be some written getting paid then then there's an invoice and right. you know who knows what those show or how detailed they are but right yeah i mean i think that there it, it would be shocking to me if there's not some some record that that should have been responsive to to what i was asking for but like i said on the spectrum of like ignorance to nefariousness when yep. it comes to public records it's usually somewhere in the middle leaning towards ignorance generally mm. what i have found <laughs> but um right. It's like Nick said, in this situation, if there's people literally going to these buildings, how is there not invoices or pay stubs or something reflecting the number of people? Don't they, do they email them and tell them when to come in? I mean, something exists. Well, they put them up overnight in motels and feed them, right? So it's just interesting to me, like, honestly, like it's a kind of an inventive way of staffing a remote Louisiana uh, prison that was put somewhere that doesn't have staff around it. But you can't understand if it works unless you have those records, period. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I I think before we see them, you know, who knows what they'll show. But ideally, it would be something that the agency would be able to defend and would want to to kind of defend and say, this is we had to do this because it was necessary and, and we have understaffing. And, and, you know, and then then it's up to the public to kind of weigh those those things. But until we know, we can't really make those determinations. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go now with, I read through the petition, not being an attorney, but it seems pretty straightforward. Um, they're in violation of the open records request. And what do we expect happens next? So I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, but I think they will set a hearing date and then, you know, each side will pr present, um, you know, their position. And I don't, I don't know what, Obviously, OJJ will say our position is yeah that they're in violation of the of the public records law and and they need to turn over those documents. So we'll be asking yeah a judge to to you know order them to. You know, I've actually been through a similar case years ago um, when I worked at Gambit with Kimberly Williamson Butler, who was the clerk. We sued sued her for a number of documents, and uh, there was a court hearing, and they asked how we had witnesses to prove that certain documents existed. I mean, it was, it was detailed. Mm. We got, we got those documents afterwards, but it was, um, you know, there were, how did you know these documents exist? How, you know, it was very, the, it was very specific. It was a long day. 
and we've had successful records lawsuits in the past too. So hoping, hoping to build on that, but then they took varying lengths of time to be ordered to produce documents. But, uh, you know, in one case, an agency had to go and basically dig through files because they said they didn't properly track the documents. Another one, we had to fight for a long time because it was a database and they thought there might be some private security information in there. But hopefully this case is a little bit more straightforward in that it, uh, in theory, is not containing much private information in the employee staffing plans or anything right. like that. So hopefully we'll see some results soon. And Nick, forever in a day, you're going to have to uh, say yes on those forms that say, have you ever been party to a lawsuit, either as a plaintiff or as being sued? Yes. Consider that. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. When do you have to do that? Yeah, when do you? Um, I've never had to do that. I'm pretty sure I've had to do that. <laughs> I think maybe, I've had to do it. When you like buy a house or something? Maybe. Maybe it's a mortgage Caroline, application. What kind, of, what kind of life are you living, Caroline? <laughs> when she moved to New Zealand. I refuse to answer on the grounds that it might incriminate me. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, managing editor Katie Rechtal, and special guest Matthew Kincaid, author of the new book, Freedom Teaching, Overcoming Racism in Education to Create Classrooms Where All Students Succeed. That book is available now at your local bookstore. Hi, I'm Delaney Dreyfus, environmental reporter at The Lens. Many people who rely on The Lens never think to make a donation, but if you do so today, you will be helping to promote one of the foundations of a healthy democracy, an informed public. The Lens has proven its worth day after day, month after month. If you're looking for a reason to support The Lens, consider this. Each and every week, we provide outstanding journalism, thoughtful analysis, and a deep commitment to our community. Make a tax-free donation today at thelensnola.org. And thank you. Up next on Behind the Lens, Matthew Kincaid, author of the new book, Freedom Teaching, Overcoming Racism in Education to Create Classrooms Where All Students Succeed. In your book, Freedom Teaching, you talk about ceding power to students and that you, you write this, control is an illusion. What are some of the ways teachers and even parents can do that? It probably sounds a little bit scary. Yeah, well, I, I think first we should demystify this idea of what it means to cede power to students. I think that this should be something that is normalized at the end of the day. Pretty much anything that we are doing to try to acquire knowledge or skills requires hands-on practice. And so, you know, you wouldn't want your doctor to just watch procedures. You would want them to be able to practice those procedures. Mechanics probably don't learn how to work on cars by just watching other people work on cars. I think the example I gave in the book was uh, an example of a personal trainer. Uh, you wouldn't want your personal trainer to just lift weights in front of you. And so I think it's about normalizing that education is supposed to be something that's done with students rather than to students and understand that students aren't empty vessels that we're trying to fill, but instead students come into classrooms with lived experiences, knowledges from home, knowledges from their communities, and all of those things can be added together to help for them to make meaning of whatever the subject matter is they're studying in the classroom at that time. Mm. You write that there's some some 
pretty provocative suggestions, I think. For example, if somebody isn't a good test taker or doesn't score well on a test, allowing them to retake. Do you think you'd butt up against some institutional pushback on suggestions like that? Everything in education is controversial. So I'm sure there will be people who find this to be a controversial um, strategy, but I just believe it to be best teaching practice, and I believe the data actually bears it out as well. The goal of an assessment should be about understanding and assessing what a student knows. And so instead of looking at tests as a final destination, we should look at tests as a checkpoint, right? And so once we get that checkpoint assessment and we've reviewed that with students, you know, when you start talking about like growth mindset and the elasticity of the mind, then the goal should be to get that student to recognize like, okay, this is where I am now. If I put in this work or if I study in these ways, this is where I can be. By saying like, hey, here's your test. You didn't get the grade that you wanted on it. Better look on the next test on the next subject matter. Right. Um, that could be, you know, mentally deflating for a kid. But if a kid gets the test and knows that they will have an opportunity down the road to retake it, it reinforces all kinds of type of skills that we want to reinforce for students. This is why the book focuses on cognitive empowerment versus just like intelligence or smarts. Because in life, there are several challenges that we face where it's like, you know what? I didn't do the very best job on this task. Um, but if I get another t if I get another chance at it, I will change this, 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 and this. And so I'd rather a student um, start developing this mindset of perseverance versus this mindset of you know, finality around what the assessment means. And then as a teacher, if they get to retake the assessment, then I also have a better idea, mm -hmm. you know, um, of, of what they know. Can you talk about the overlap or the uh, dovetail is probably a better word for the organization Overcoming Racism and the principles that you outline in this book? How, how does that, how do the principles address racism specifically in education? Well, I think that, um, you know, ultimately when you think about what racism does, racism in a lot of ways, I like to think of it like a virus um, and it continues to shift and mutate and to effectively adapt to a lot of the different um, cures or antidotes or the different stimulus that we send towards it. And I think that one of the best tools that we have to address racism is education. Um, you know, when I first started teaching seventh and eighth grade social studies in New Orleans, many of my students came to me not knowing that Dr. King and Abraham Lincoln lived in two different time spans because, or time periods rather, because they learned black history in these like small vignettes during Black History Month. And it reminds me of a Garvey quote, which I'm paraphrasing, which is like a person without uh, the knowledge of their culture, their traditions or history is like a tree without roots. And we think about what a root does for people um, obviously, it provides, you know, the nutrients, it provides the foundation for it to stay in the ground or whatever the case may be. And so in my teaching, I was just trying to provide students with that foundation, that foundation to know that they were not less than, that foundation to know that they came from great people who provided um, to the intellectual landscape of this country, but also to the world, to know that they can do anything that they put their mind to, not because I tell them that, but because they have examples of people who've done that, despite all of the odds and obstacles. You know, there's this huge push against quote unquote anti-racism in education or critical race theory or diversity, equity, inclusion, because people are saying without any data to back it up, you'll notice any critic of anti-racism in education never has any data to back it up. It's just like people who, you know, flex their opinions. They say things like, well, if you teach kids about racism, it will make them feel like they're victims. But it actually does the opposite of that. 
it allows them to feel like they have some sort of agency over the outcomes that exist in their lives. And so freedom teaching talks about the word freedom through this collective mindset, because from the lens of the United States, oftentimes we talk about things like rugged individualism or, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There's this very like individualistic kind of socialization that comes to this idea of freedom. Yeah. But for a person like myself, a person of color, my parents grew up and went to segregated schools. My grandfather was a sharecropper. You know, for many of us, this history is not, you know, ancient history. This is just the reality of our lived experience. And for people like me, freedom has always been a shared trait. Our ability to vote, our ability to get an education, our ability to, you know, go into restaurants, whatever the case may be. We had to fight for this in solidarity. And I think it's the same thing in our educational institutions to say, if we truly want our kids to be free, both in their classrooms as well as in their lives, then they have to work together. They have to see this as a communal asset and a communal trait. And when I started doing that with my students and when students started to realize like, I'm not just showing up and working hard in school because I want to be successful. I'm showing up and working hard in school because I care about the success to the student to my right and to my left. Classroom management started to take care of itself. Test mm -hmm. scores started to take care of themselves. Um, the students started to be the ones who were pushing and motivating. And the days when I came in and I was tired or I didn't feel well or I didn't have the best lesson plan, the students were the ones who would come to me and be like, oh, no, Mr. Kincaid, like, you told us this, this, and this. Like, we were going to learn today. You're going to push us today. And so mm -hmm. um, I've seen the magic firsthand. And that's what the book is all about. It's just showing other people an alternative way to, to reach our kids. When you um, cut down suspensions, did you utilize in-school suspension or were you doing more holistic stuff to make that happen? Like, because I feel like that's still a really big issue and in fact sort of swept under the rug here. So yeah, I want to be really clear. I'm actually 100% uh, against suspension uh, in totality. I was the assistant principal at that time and the example that I'm talking about. Um, but in my personal philosophy, I don't believe that suspension in school or out of school suspension is um, emeritus uh, or really just has any merit. And quite frankly, like there's been study after study after study after study on the impacts of in and out of school suspension. You will not find a single study that gives you any sort of data that says that it uh, does anything positive for kids. But there are a lot of studies about like the significant cost, especially for black boys who are suspended before eighth grade. The likelihood that these students uh, go to jail is significantly increased. The likelihood that these students drop out of school is significantly increased. Like there is a lot of these significant dangers. So we were not replacing out of school suspensions with in school suspensions. Um, we were working on having more of a restorative discipline process. And I recognize that there are like some legal requirements around things that happen in schools where students need to be separate for, separated from the school for certain legal reasons or whatever the case may be. And like, you know, I understand that those things have to exist. But, um, you know, our goal is to find ways that students can recognize the harm that is being done by their behavior and work to repair the harm. Most students misbehave because of academic anxiety, in my experience, and also because of unmet needs, right? And so you take a kid who's experiencing some level of academic anxiety and finds an out from that experience of academic anxiety by means of misbehavior, and you take that kid out of school for, say, five days. Well, now that's 50 hours of instruction that kid has missed, and you put them back into the environment in which they were academically anxious, but 50 hours behind the rest of their peers, and then somehow you expect that to be um, a deterrent from them engaging that behavior again. It's just, 
it's kind of nonsensical. And so I know people have attachment to these types of discipline processes and they feel like if you don't do this, you know, it's not preparing kids for the real world and this and that, whatever. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, it's just like, there's no data to suggest that this gets you what you want. And so I'd rather work on finding uh, practices that actually restore students back to the school community and then teach replacement behaviors. What's the reception been like so far? Well, it's good. I'm, <laughs> I've uh, been a little bit stressed today because today is the technical release date of the book and Amazon is sold out of books. So <gasps> um, the people buying books on Amazon are buying them from resellers, which is great. I'm happy about it being sold out on Amazon, but it's also confusing to tell people like, we don't really get credit for those sales. So, you know, try to go to bookshop.org or uh, Barnes and Noble or where the case may be. So the reception has been positive. You know, one thing that I'll say is like the community of people who've supported me over the years um, are nothing short of amazing. And um, Overcoming Racism, this book, everything that I've been able to do is far more of a reflection of the movement that has been built behind me than myself or my team. Mm -hmm. And so the response to the book has been extremely positive so far. And I believe that when people get a chance to read it, people will really benefit from it because the book is really about how do we teach and educate from a center of love and empathy and humanity. And um, we can disagree about all of the different mechanisms of that, but we shouldn't disagree about the fact that students deserve to be in a love-centered um, and freedom-centered uh, education base. You know, my main goal with the book is just that it helps people uh, this particular publisher has been asking me to write this book now for about three years, and I just never had the time to do it. Um, it's always been something I've been interested in doing, but I just was running so much trying to, you know, do the work that's, you know, on the ground in front of me. And so I finally got the opportunity to do it, and I just hope that for educators around the country who never get a chance to be a part of an overcoming workshop, racism workshop, you know, if you read the book, you get that and more. Matthew, I just wanted to say I really appreciated uh, the book. The part that you let us republish was, I thought, just so approachable for people, both parents and teachers, like you say, um, these specific strategies uh, to empower students. Um, and it also helped me reflect back on my own education. Um, and I was so lucky uh, last weekend I was home, uh, I grew up in Minneapolis, and I got to see my one of my high school English teachers. So I'm going to give a shout out to Miss Marsnick because her classroom was always an approachable place. We had group discussions. The discussions could carry where the students were taking them. And it was such a stark contrast to this vision I have from ninth grade where I like suggested a certain interpretation of a poem or something, and the teacher just absolutely shot me down and oh. I shut down for the rest of that year. So... I, I just well, really appreciate these strategies, especially giving power to students, power to question, and admitting when educators are wrong. And I, I think educators stand a lot to gain from this book. And and think about like how both of those experiences have stuck with you. Hmm. And I think you know there's a um, you know old adage. I don't I don't know who to attribute this quote to, but it's like kids don't care how much uh, you know until they know how much you care. And then also, you know, people don't necessarily always remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. And I think oftentimes as educators, we are so overburdened, we're so overstressed. There's so much information that we're supposed to get students to be able to regurgitate by the end of the school year that we lose sight of the fact that like students are just young humans who are trying to, you know, navigate life with similar stresses that we have. A lot of times I think of adults as just like, you know, middle schools with bills and jobs. And so, um, you know, um, I think that story that you tell is really an example of why 
the book reads the way that it does because at the end of the day, we want to give students an educational experience that is valuable, not just in terms of the knowledge that they attain, but also the humanity that inspires in them and the confidence and self-esteem and the way that it builds them up to take on a really challenging world. And whether you are a woman or a student of color or in the LGBTQI plus community, or if you're white, heterosexual, cisgender, and upper class, all of us have problems. Um, and school should be a place where we can come together, where we can build our knowledge and where we can hopefully work to build a better society for everyone. So um, I really appreciate that reflection. And for all my students who have hit me up over the last couple of weeks, reminding me of like what it felt like to be in my class. Um, mm -hmm. That's what really matters. They're all grown. Some of them have their own families and things like that. So, um, you know, make sure you tell that teacher because there's no better feeling in the world than your adult students telling you that something you did uh, made a lasting impact. Matthew Kincaid, author of the new book, Freedom Teaching, Overcoming Racism in Education to Create Classrooms Where All Students Succeed. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you all so much for having me, and I really appreciate the lens for supporting this project. All right. Have a great weekend, you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, education reporter Marta Jusen, managing editor Katie Rechtal, and special guest Matthew Kincaid, author of the new book, Freedom Teaching, Overcoming Racism in Education to Create Classrooms Where All Students Succeed. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.